today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Prime Minister made some comments which uh, got an immediate reaction from the Chinese government. Uh, China said on Wednesday they have lodged what they call a, a solemn representation with Canada on the media reports about some of the comments that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made. Uh, here we go again, butting heads uh, with the Chinese government about, well, this time it's uh, the way we feel about their, their status in the world and the way they do business. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Elliot Tepper, America's Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, good morning, Elliot. How are you doing today? Uh, good morning, Bill. I'm just fine. I'm a whole lot better than the two Michaels and, a, uh, and, and the other Canadians as well. Uh, you know, we, are... we get so close yet so far away. We had the story yeah. last week, Elliot, as you know, that, that uh, the, the Canadian representatives were actually able to have conversations with the two Michaels. And I thought, well, maybe there's a breakthrough here. Uh, it seems to be one step forward and five steps back now with the latest... Uh, missive here from the Chinese. There's no... Uh, it's very nice that that uh, legally entitled uh, consular visit was uh, permitted, at, at least uh, virtually, and it's the first time in, uh, I guess, since March or January that yeah. that's been happening. Even though China has basically reopened, uh, they've been using COVID as an excuse to uh, deny the basic fundamental obligation under uh, universal international law. But but the the broader picture here is that China is now apparently sensitive to the fact that they are receiving complaints. That's, I guess, a, a bit of a step forward. Now we are in a situation where symbolically it's it's a well noted, well worth noting. We are at the 50th anniversary of diplomatic relations. Pierre Elliott, Elliott Trudeau uh, took the initiative. You know, he had he had been to China, uh, to an ocean abroad in China, and so forth. So. Uh, it was considered significant. I, I, I remember the events, and uh, it wasn't. Listen, there wasn't much going on back in those days. I mean, you know, China no. was a great unknown. Uh, no, it, but it meant wanted to have anything to do with them. But it meant breaking ties with Taiwan. Yeah, uh, diplomatic ties. Uh, but we did work out a formula then, so that uh, there is, in fact, uh, unofficial diplomatic ties, and that we have representative offices. But Taiwan now comes back into the news. In, in this fashion, because as China's reputation takes greater and greater uh, damage because of the kind of coercive diplomacy they're now objecting to, and we've got some data on the, that damage, then the urge to do more for and with Taiwan goes up. Uh, and that is not only with us, but with the United States. And as you know, they have their quite different kinds of uh, disputes. They're not as concerned with human rights, but they've got other issues. No, we have a situation here where China has considered themselves essentially immune because they're dealing as a giant country with, uh, you know, us, and we, we certainly have our strengths, and we underestimate them, I think. We're, we're, we are a G7 country, after all. But uh, if we don't work in concert with others, then it's very hard to deal with this massive world's second or even first largest economy. That is now, and this is the, that is now throwing its weight around. You know, when it was doing peaceable rise, and they wanted to say, "Look, we're st <clears throat> still a developing country," it was different. But now that Xi Jinping has decided to throw off all shackles and stand forth as a wolf warrior, and they have treated us, but other countries, with coercive diplomacy, what we're seeing now is that they are indeed paying something of a reputational cost that I think uh, they are less willing to. Ignore, and we have tools, Bill, which perhaps on this 50th anniversary, others are now saying we'd better get tougher. Um, the "be nice to China" 
policy as as being um, as being claimed. I don't think we're ever, you know, being nice to China isn't what we were doing. But with lives on the line, our people's lives on the line, uh, Canada has had to tread, you know, cautiously. But it's it's uh, on the 50th anniversary. It's great that they are now getting the negative attention they deserve over this issue, and and more steps should be following. Uh, quickly, the, the, I, I know you've seen a quote, but for the sake of our listeners, uh, the Prime Minister said, uh, we will continue to work with China for advancing Canadian interests and Canadian producers. At the same time, we will remain absolutely committed to working with our allies to ensure that China's approach to, there's that phrase again, like coercive di- diplomacy, its arbitrary detention of two Canadian citizens along with other citizens in other countries around the world is not viewed as a successful tactic by them. Uh, that's not a bridge-building kind of comment. Uh, it's it's meant to obviously rankle them, and apparently it got the response that they expected. Yes, and it could be uh, an indication from our side that since we're willing to use that kind of diplomacy, not in you know in, in punditry and in columns, but from the government itself, that the other measures now that uh, are being suggested might uh, be employed by the government. We have a global Magnitsky Act. Why not? Because remember, this was also put in terms not of our court. There are two Michaels. And I want to remind people, we also have Hussein Shalil in jail, and there's uh, yep. and, there, and people forget that. And this is all about the Uyghurs and the massive human rights uh, revelation about the nature of this regime. And basically what's happened is that through the way they treat our two Michaels, but the way that they're doing that with other countries, China has really come into focus, finally, uh, with the change of behavior by Xi Jinping as the kind of state that it was and is, and they are uh, paying a cost. Pew, there's a company that does, you know, what do you think about this country, that country? They do these analyses, and it's been a huge, sharp shift negatively, not only in Canada, but around the world in terms of attitudes of people. So this is a country that says we want to lead, we're going to preserve the world in you know, global international order, uh, the U.S. wants to back out, we'll fill the vacuum, don't worry about it, uh, and we're, we're just such, such great cooperators. But no, uh, world opinion is, is turning sharply against China, and they may pay a cost through Magnitsky um, uh, sanctions. There's also that's targeted sanctions saying individuals, individuals, are now going to be forbidden to uh, to travel to a lot of different countries. Uh, there, and here's here's where it gets critical: assets get, could get frozen. Uh, the Chinese elite uh, and also the nouveau riche are parking their assets, their financial assets, and often with their children attached outside the country. There's a lot of levers that can be ratcheted up, uh, but at the same time, as a, as a leader, as you know, as any prime minister, you have to keep in mind. What about the safety of the of the hostages? So, what we have is a situation that uh, a country that wants to be a global leader that has things, you know, we want them to buy our stuff. You, he opened. The prime minister says we want good, normal economic relations, but you're not going to have good political relations uh, if if you continue to behave this way. But where do you find the balance? You're absolutely right. I mean, the Majuskap gives them a number of different tools to use, but there seems to be a, a hesitancy, at least there was anyway, on behalf of the Canadian government to do that, uh, notwithstanding the pressure that we're getting. We recall there was a, a, a letter that was signed by, I think it was 15 or 20 former yes. diplomats, uh, including John Manley and, uh, and former Justice Minister Erwin Kotlin. They're uh, urging the government very strongly to, to enact some of those restrictions. 
and uh, and play hardball with them. And uh, is, is this the beginning of, of of a new approach that this government's going to take towards China? Then, because this is the toughest talk we've heard in a long, long time. Yes, uh, and in, you know, and this is diplo talk. So it's it, this is this is harsh language. <laughs> as yeah, leaders, the way that leaders talk. Uh, Erwin Kotler's also taken the lead for something called the Interparliamentary, um, I think, Alliance uh, about China. So a number of parliamentarians around the world are now get, uh, making their voices heard, again, further damaging uh, the reputational interest of China as they try to become you know, the world leader, as, as Xi Jinping says. And by 2050, we're going to be the, the central power in the world. And he's got a plan to get there. And that plan uh, along the way involves massive human rights violations with the Uyghurs. And, and uh, now Tibet, by the way, interestingly, is coming back into the conversation because of the treatment of the Uyghurs, and that was, they thought that was settled. And the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a, a trillion-dollar expansion by China around the world, really basically lock up resources and ports to feed this growing superpower. All, China is being reevaluated. Canada is playing its role, and our people uh, in prison, and, and, and multiple people, more than the two Michaels, but certainly the two Michaels, they are paying the cost. Well, they are, and, and the problem here is that, and I guess the fear the government said in the past, Elliot, is if we talk tough with these guys, or if we start putting restrictions and, and, and freezing assets and things of that nature, what's going to happen? I mean, don't forget there was a third Canadian that was charged around the same time that all of a sudden went on trial and, and was, you know, he was he was sentenced to the death penalty, and right. you figure, okay, that, that, that here they are playing politics, and you don't want to put Canadian lives uh, in peril in a situation like that. So uh, I understand that the, the hesitancy in the past. But there's something else you mentioned that I wanted to, if you could expand on just a sure. second ago. Uh, and we've talked about this in the past, and that's world order and what's going on. And we see China now flexing its muscle more than they ever have before. Putin is doing the same thing. Uh, there's got to be a tie-in here with the fact that, as you talked about, the Americans have pretty much abdicated their responsibility as a world power and almost as a world referee in situations like that. They're not holding either one of those countries in check anymore. Uh, and, and these guys are pretty much doing what they want when they want. I, I know Trump talks a lot about China, but he doesn't quite understand, I think, the dynamic of what's going on in the world. or doesn't care. Yeah. We are basically stuck <laughs> with a, a China that already exists as we see it. Uh, uh, this is a major player in the world, and they have done enormous modernization at home and development at home, and they deserve the credit for bringing more people, this is a cliche almost, more people out of poverty in a shorter time than any, any country in history. The decline in global poverty is, uh, that we've talked about in other ways, and it's notable and it's certainly a good thing in the world, is because we have uh, a China that has put its efforts, uh, basically our resources, because we buy cheap stuff and <laughs> we sell them our sawdust, they, sell, they send us furniture, so they get the value added. So they have grown in a way that has benefited their own society and, and uh, much better them. Remember, we could have, and this is a thought experiment, but, you know, we had this state, a, state, a, a state which is a pariah. If, if you view North Korea and the kind of behavior they have and say, hey, remember, that's how Mao behaved, but they changed fundamentally under Deng, Deng Xiaoping and said, look, we're ready now to be a different kind of country. We're, we're not going to be the kind of, uh, you know, North Korea type 
leadership uh, that Chairman Mao had subjected the world and himself unto. So their transformation into a globally cooperative, economically successful, uh, diplomatically active country was a welcome, uh, a welcome contribution and a welcome transformation from what could have been a, a really uh, much worse dicta- uh, dictatorship. But now they've kind of blown that advantage that they were building up globally in terms of people saying, yeah, we want to work with you, we wish you well, we, we're going to help you. Now people are saying, look, you're still the Communist Party, and this is interesting to note, uh, and of course Donald Trump has led the way on this, but not uniquely. This is the Communist Party of China, it's not China. And they are behaving in a way uh, inimical to global interest in all kinds of ways. They are subverting, they've got uh, influence operations around the world. They, they are charged with gutting Nortel and crushing it, and you know, they are not behaving in a way that makes them good global citizens at a time when they're laying claim to be uh, future global leaders. And Xi Jinping, most since he's come to power, consolidated power, has really transformed the nature of their rise, how they are rising, how they are perceived uh, to be, um, to be uh, a, a good global citizen. At the same time, when they are indeed saying, we, we want to uphold the global international rule of law, international rule of law, the kind of world order that Canada requires, uh, and other states, but Canada specifically requires a good uh, operating international um, rules-based international order. And China said, oh, we're all for that. And then we see how they actually are behaving in terms of influence operations as well as what they're doing to our people. Where do we go from here, Elliot? I mean, the tough talk from the Prime Minister yesterday, uh, we haven't heard the other shoe drop as to how the Chinese government's going to react. I mean, they've, they've issued this, what they call, solemn presentation here. In other words, we're ticked off at what you said, uh, which I guess is not really a surprise to anybody here. But should we anticipate, uh, as we did with the Huawei move from a couple of years ago now, uh, that uh, that they're going to retaliate in some way, shape, or form? Yes. The um, Again, whoever the leader of the, this country is has to be mindful of the fact that we have hostages basically uh, subject to the whim of, of that Communist Party government. And they we haven't even mentioned uh, the cause, the proximate cause, the immediate cause of uh, why we're in this situation is because of Meng Wanzhou. Uh, and there's been serious people, and people who understand the nature of power. Uh, uh, let me back off. There's been intra-elite um, dissension inside Canada what to do about the two Michaels, uh, why not just do a hostage swap? Yes, they're hostages. Uh, let her go. And very impressive voices in Canada, people who understand how power works in the world, have said, look, let's just make it a straightforward swap. We'll let out Meng Wanzhou. And after all, this is we're only doing this for the U.S. at their request. They're not particularly interested in helping us anyway. Why not just let her go? And the Prime Minister of Canada and, and many other parts of the uh, what I would call the, the intellectual and diplomatic and pundocracy elite said you can't because if you, uh, if you get into hostage exchanges, they'll just take more hostages anytime they want, and that's a downward spiral. So to, for the protection of other Canadians in the future, we can't just do a hostage swap. Besides which, we do have a rule of law in Canada. We can't just say, yeah, let it go. So that's the kind of conversation. If Meng Wanzhou's trial ever comes to the point where she's released, uh, then our situation with China would probably change. But would our newly uh, 
would our attitude change based on our new understanding about the nature of that regime? Well, and they're, I guess, trying to take a side door answer to that, too. I saw the story last week that they're uh, urging Justice Minister Lamanetti to get involved in that case. Not yes. necessarily to say, let her go, but simply to say the extradition is, is wrong-headed and, and we're not going to get involved in this. You want to get on a plane, we're not going to stop you. That, that sort of thing. I don't, yes. I don't know if he's going to do that. I, I, that's a pretty bold step for the government to take. Uh, and then you have to wonder about, it. well, how would the U.S. government respond to that? Yes, well, the U.S. government's rather preoccupied at the minute. Pretty and, much, yeah. So, and what would a what would a Biden administration, which according to the polls is certainly a, a definite possibility, uh, what difference would that make in terms of everything we're talking about? How would the U.S. react to China? Remember, standing back and being my my political scientist, uh, uh, wearing that hat for the minute. Remember, we're in a situation where. Since 1989, we've had an unusual global phenomenon of only one superpower in the world, and that's kind of an unnatural situation. A multipolar world is more natural, and how you manage that transition to a more multipolar world is really the the key to peace and prosperity uh, around the world, including you know for for us because how the U.S. manages that transition, and China is the primary challenger now. But India is waiting. Brazil is waiting. There's others who say, look, you can't have a unipolar world. How that transition is managed is going to determine basically the future. And uh, we've seen how Donald Trump is handling it. Uh, but a Biden administration, and we don't know who his secretary of state might be. Um, I would think Susan Rice is a pretty good guess. Yeah, but, pretty good uh, shot, yeah. <laughs> yeah but uh, a, we could have a lot of fun speculating on that. But, mm -hmm. um, but the point is, is a Biden administration may handle the rise of China differently than Trump has done. But China is already here, and this is what you mentioned before. What do you do about the fact that you have a China that's already here in so many ways, uh, economically and uh, politically and di diplomatically? You know, you go to Davos and there's China saying, we, we unlike the U.S., will uphold the, <laughs> the international order. What do you do about a China that's already here under the current leadership? And I think trying to affect the nature of that leadership, coming back to what we're talking about right now, Deng Xiaoping has paid basically no cost at all for being a truculent international aggressor uh, in all kinds of ways. But now that we, among others, and we're helping lead this shift, we are playing our role in uh, leading a shift in attitude toward China from being you know, a welcome, cooperating, emerging power into the Communist Party of China exercising its, its uh, extra-legal and and uh, authoritarian tendencies at home and abroad. We haven't talked about Hong Kong in this long conversation, no. but, you know, Hong Kong and look how they're behaving. So um, it, the hope is that uh, around the world, but certainly with the change in the U.S. behavior uh, towards an attitude toward China, that China might in turn reevaluate what kind of world leader it wants to be and how it intends to get there. Exactly. Ellie, we've got to leave it there for now. Uh, we'll obviously talk about this when we get the reaction from the Chinese government. And lots of speculation, too. I look forward to those further discussions. Thanks again for this today. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. Ellie Tepper, of course, uh, from uh, Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. 
Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.